I told you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. What I want to minister on this morning and the weeks that following is I want to go back to the subject of Christian ethics. We got into this um, well over a year ago. We ministered for, I don't know, maybe 35 weeks on it. And then in March of last year, with all this COVID stuff going around, um, we put a pause on it and went into another area of study, which was restoration, if you remember. But I said I wanted to come back to this. What I basically covered in that was Old Testament ethics, and I wanted to come back and finish what we started. I believe this is an extremely important subject. So possibly next week or the week after, what I want to do is go back through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We've been teaching now in this church for, I believe, like um, 47 years. We started in 1976. Maybe not quite then. It'd be like whatever that would be, uh, 45, 46 years, somewhere in there. And I think within the first 10 years, I taught on the Sermon on the Mount. And then the last time I taught on it was 2010. It's been 11 years. And I believe that it's the heart of the message of discipleship. And it's really the key to the subject of ethics. Uh, Look over there at Dave last before I went to, to Florida a few weeks ago, I remember Dave coming up to me. We were teaching on uh, overcoming sinful habits and so forth. And I'll be able to deal with all of that in this study because all that will come out. But I remember him making a statement to me uh, in the back of the room. He said, you know, no, no. if we could just get everybody in the country to live the Sermon on the Mounts, things would really be a whole lot different. And I said, that sure would be, but it's not going to happen. You can't, you can't even get most Christians to live what Jesus said. Uh, and, you know, to well, what John was bringing out, we need to be in prayer for our country and our leaders, but we need to remember, the Bible says we're strangers and pilgrims passing through. And there's a a word of caution. Don't let yourself get all caught up into it. We're strangers. This is not our home. This is not our kingdom. This is not the United States government. I wouldn't want to live under any other country, any other government. But it's not the kingdom of God on the earth. We've been put here for a reason, and that is to find out what Jesus wants us to live and then bring that light into the into the darkness of this world. Certainly, every country is in degrees of darkness, but our focus as Christians should be on how does my King want me to live, and that's really what Christian ethics is all about. The Sermon on the Mount is the heart to Christian ethics, and if you just look at Matthew five, for example, a couple of passages. It goes from Matthew 5 over to Matthew 7. If you look at Matthew 5, 1 and 2 in the beginning, now I'm not going to get into this subject this morning in any great depth because 
we got a lot of ladies taking a break, and uh, I want to kind of go back over a few things that I laid as a foundation. But in the beginning, look at what it said here, Matthew 5. It says, In seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set down, his disciples came to him. So he wasn't here just talking to the twelve. He wasn't just talking to the apostles and saying, let me give you some deep theology that as you go forth in your life and minister after I'm gone, I want you to use this as a foundation that those who get converted can build upon. He's looking out. It says when he saw the multitudes, I don't know how many. We, there were times when he ministered to 3,000. There were times when he ministered to 5,000. I don't think I'd be off to say there were there were very easily could have been thousands that were in front of him, and he sat down on a hill on a mountain. He sat down, and he began to speak. No audio, no system out there, you know, uh, not a whole lot of thrills and excitement and all that. It's just, it's just a very, he sits on this hill, on this mountain, all of them were his disciples, and he opened his mouth and he proceeded to start teaching them. Now what he taught them is what we'll get into, and I think if the Lord leads, we'll probably stress some areas that we haven't talked about a lot, and those that we sometimes refer to a lot, we may back off a little bit because we uh, kind of pick and choose from this, these chapters as we minister on a regular basis. But go over to the end of it in Matthew 7, the very end. I don't know how long it took him to minister these things, but there's tremendous profound truth in what is there. And when he got done with it, he said unto them in verse, uh, well, we'll start with verse 21 real quick. I don't want to back up and get into chapter 7 although I see in verse 13 he says enter in at the straight gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and many will be going into that gate but he tells us to beware of false prophets and to go in the narrow way that means that we're not going to be following a crowd he doesn't want us following a crowd he wants us following him and he emphasizes that at the end of this now I'm only going to mention this and then I'll go into my introduction he said verse 21 not everyone that says unto me Lord Lord shall enter into the kingdom of heaven but he that does the will of my father which is in heaven when we become a Christian we take Jesus as both Savior and Lord his saviorship is the atonement the work of him dying on our behalf and his blood cleanses our sins, and we are converted and made a new creation in Christ. But salvation involves more than just being forgiven of our past life. It's now taking him as Lord. And as Lord and Master, he's our King. And it's finding out what purpose he created us for and then striving to live that. And living it under grace means that occasionally we're going to make a mistake, but we can be forgiven of that. As long as we don't keep making it into a habit, we won't get in trouble with him. If it becomes habit-forming, he may 
discipline us or correct us. But he says there'll be a lot of people, that wide gate, a lot of people are going to call him Lord. They're going to say, I'm a Christian. That's what they're going to say. Because to be a disciple means to be a Christian. You can't be a, you can't be a Christian and not a disciple. If you're a Christian, you are a disciple. Anyways, he says, not everyone that calls me Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he's kind of referring back to what he said about that gate. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not cast out demons in thy name? Have we done many wonderful works in thy name? He said this. He said, people are going to come to me and they're going to talk about things they did in my name. And then he says to them, I'm going to say back to you, I never knew you. Depart from me ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. You did all that on your own. We got a lot of men today that they're getting too caught up in the, in the country's politics. And they're prophesying this and prophesying that. You want to say, this isn't Israel. This isn't the Old Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, the king, Israel was the kingdom of God upon the earth. The Ark of the Covenant was God's throne. And he sat and ruled. But he's not sitting and ruling in the White House on this to, to rule over our country. He's, he, we're not down there to get caught up in politics. And all the prophecies that were coming forth, and I'm not going to get into them, but some of them were, were way wrong. It's not right. And there's a place of, of not trying to justify it, and I've heard men trying to do that. He says, I'm going to say to you, I don't, I don't know who you are. Depart from me. You're a worker of iniquity. And then listen to verse 24. Therefore, he says, whosoever hears these sayings of mine. Now that'd be from, from the beginning of the mountain when he sits down till the time that he gets done, which is here. All these sayings that we're going to get into, and they're very profound principles that we're to live by. Whosoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken unto that man as a wise man that is building his house upon a rock. Now, can't we all say that, that as a Christian, the Bible, we've taught this many times, speaks about how that we're building upon a foundation. The foundation is Jesus. But as a Christian, we're to mature and grow, find out how he wants us to live, live that way, not talk that way, live that way. So it's an example to those that are around us that are not Christians that this is the way we are to live. And so that comes by hearing his sayings and doing them. He says that person that is a hearer of the word and puts it into practice and lives it is like a man that's very wise and building his house upon a rock. He said the, the rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not because it was founded upon a rock. We're going to have rain we're going to have floods. We're going to have trials and tribulations and persecution that are going to come on us as Christian. And the true Christian is going to overcome that. Bev and I watched a CD uh, this week, and I, I forget the name of it, but um, it was something like Tortured for the Faith. And it was a Lutheran minister, and it'd be a good one maybe even to 
show the church. They, the ladies might even be watching it this weekend. I'm not sure. But it was a Lutheran minister during uh, World War II. When Hitler came in, and I believe the country, well, it was one of the Slavic countries. I forget which one. But when Hitler came in, he didn't um, shut down all the churches. But what he did was he basically influenced them in such a way that he told them what was acceptable to preach and what was not. And because they were on the payroll, because they were paid by the government, then the result was that most of them compromised their Christian convictions and went along with it because they didn't want any persecution. But this one Lutheran minister was in a council before all these uh, Germans and ministers, and he stood up and he told the people, he said, we have to stay with what is right. We have to stay with the truth. Well, to make a long story short, he was him and his wife was put in prison uh, for many years. They killed his son right in front of him. They tortured him constantly to try to get him to tell them who these other people were that were believers because they were trying to shut him down. He never gave in. His wife was uh, tortured. He was tortured. They brought his son into a cell and kept torturing his son. Of course, that'd be very difficult to be like, you, Nate, being in prison and then bringing David in. And the boy kept crying out, Dad, don't don't give, don't bend. And they finally killed the, the boy right in front of him. It's a very sad testimony, but uh, he goes on then. He was able, him and his wife were able to get out. He died in the early uh, 2000. But um, as I watched it, I thought, how many Christians today would pay that kind of price that would have the truth in their heart so much that when the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew, they were founded upon the rock and their faith would not be compromised and given up. Most of them did because they were, well, money talks. They don't want to lose their congregation. They don't want to lose their church. Churches today, uh, many of them are very dependent upon the, the government. They shouldn't be. It's a different world. Uh, I remember when we first moved in here, do you realize that we've been in this church now for 12 years? Isn't that amazing? It's been that, it's been that long. 2008 we came in here. And I remember when we came in, we were renting it for a little while. And I had a contract with the, the minister that I rented it from to whereby it was going to be a rent-to-own type of deal. He said, I'll take uh, a big portion of your rent and apply it to uh, down payment on the church, and at some point we'd like you to buy it. But you're not under any pressure. I said, okay. So we went that way, and after a year, he came to me and said that a buyer had come forth and wanted to buy it, so if we wanted it, we had to buy it right at that point. And we couldn't afford to do that at that point, so I said, let them buy it. So somebody else bought it. <laughs> that somebody else was the denomination that he was connected to. So I won't get into, into all that. But anyways, he said to me, look, 
All you have to do is set up a daycare. All you have to do is come up with a a teenage drug help program. All you got to do is come up with some kind of a community service in the building and the government will pay you and that can be used then to pay off the, uh, the, the loan and so forth. And I said, no, I'm not going to get connected into the state like that. I mean, we're registered with the state, but but we are not a tax-exempt organization like 99.9% um, .9 churches are. But that's what was going on in Germany. Hitler had his fingers a little bit into, into the churches to whereby he could tell them what was acceptable and what was not acceptable for them to bring forth from the pulpit. And most surrendered to that this one Lutheran minister, and there were others, they didn't. They were going to stay with the truth. And I thought about that when I was reading this, that he'd heard the sayings of Jesus. He knew what the Word of God said. I mean, I don't necessarily mean he was perfect in his theology, but what he knew that was right, he made the choice to stay with it, not compromise. And that is expected out of all of us. We'll never be able to blame others for any kind of compromising position we want to take on truth. He said, whosoever hears these sayings of mine, and that would be with all those prior chapters, he says, I will liken unto him as a wise man that builds his house upon a rock, the rains descend, the floods come, the winds blow, it beats on that house. He's talking about us. He's talking about our faith, our building, what we believe. He said, you're going to have rain descending and floods coming and winds blowing, and it's going to beat on you. We're not going to be free from persecution and trial testing. doesn't matter who is in what political power. He says, when it does, he says it's founded upon a rock, and it, and it stands up to the trials that go through. Everyone that hears these things of mine and does them not shall be likened unto a foolish man that builds his house upon sand. The rains descended, the floods come, the winds blow and beat on the house, and it falls. And terrible and great will be that fall. Now what was he talking about? He was saying... To these thousands of people, listen to me. I'm going to give you the important ethics or the important truths of my word that I'm expecting you to live. If you listen and you live it, you can be built upon a rock, built upon that foundation of salvation, built upon a rock, and no matter what trials, tests, or problems come along, you've got eternal security. That's what he was saying. But if you want to just play church, you want to play games, you want to say, well, I'm a Christian. He said they call him Lord, Lord. If you want to play games, you just want to listen, you want to pick and choose at what I'm about to say. If it's not as important what I say versus what you say, you're a fool. You're building upon sand. Now that's, that is strong. You can see why there are a great number of Christians that they don't like this. I can show you books whereby they say, well, that's not for today. <laughs> they don't like it. But it is for today. It's not for some future 
time, like the millennium is what some of them like to do. So I know God wants me to get back into it again. And we'll just let him lead as far as what I emphasize and what I don't emphasize. But what I'm emphasizing, at least at this point, is that what I'm going to share with you, and it might take several months, it's important. It is very important. Just like Nate said, the troublesome times, John said it this morning. Well, we are in troublesome times, but not near as troublesome as other Christians have gone through. We're not in the midst of a world war. But at the same time, it is troublesome times to whereby we see Christians that are compromising right and left to keep congregations or whatever their reason, I don't care. What God wants is he wants us to find out what is right, pay the price for it, and sell it not. So Christian ethics deals with that subject. It deals with that. So let me go back through and give you some things that I shared back, oh, maybe a year and a half ago now. Those teachings aren't on my website yet, but some of you that are on Zoom, uh, if you send me an email, and I believe my email address is on my website, if you send that to me, I'll work at getting some of the older ones on. But I'll try to put these on weekly as we go so that if some are interested and they want to get out on the website, the website's up right now, by the way, then they can get into it and listen to them and keep up with these studies. So let me just do some brief reminding of what ethics is all about. Ethics deals with the subject of right and wrong choices. Christian ethics involves learning various principles of right and wrong from the scripture. It's not just ethics, it's Christian ethics. And then it's practicing them in the everyday choices of life. It's pr principles, not rules. We don't have a rule book, because there's no, what kind of a book would you have to, you'd have to haul it around in a semi or something for every rule, for every situation that you're confronted with. So there are principles in the Bible that as you learn these principles, it helps you to, apply them to everyday situations that come along. Making right and wrong choices. We're given a, a free will, we're given a choice, and that choice is that uh, when we're confronted with it, what am I going to do? Let me give you some illustrations, some simple things at first, but then make them a little bit more important. Let's say, for example, we're confronted with choices of right and wrong in our daily life. How should I act then in this situation? Let's say, for example, you're driving along down the road. And a lot of these traffic lights are triggered by cars that come in from another side today. You know what I mean? So you're driving along and you see a sign up there that says, got a couple lights on it, says, prepare to stop when flashing. So you're driving along and you can see quite a ways up and a car pulls up and it's stopped at the stoplight and you're a ways back and this sign lights up and they start blinking. So what do you do? You got a choice. Do you obey the law and prepare to stop or is it hammer down? How many of you have ever hammered down? You want to beat the light? I have. 
And occasionally, and my wife, she's listening out there, and you know this is true, hon. She has sometimes said to me, if I did that, good job, Mike. But that was only if we got through and it was yellow. (laughs) But in either case, if a policeman was sitting there and those lights came on, would you hammer down? Chances are you wouldn't. Unless you knew that it was like a car in Florida we saw where they moved it around and nobody was in it. Chances are you you would slow down because you knew that that if you hammered down and you go through it, you're liable to stand before a judge. (laughs) You know, we're going to stand before a judge. And he's not going to judge us for, for sins that have been forgiven, but rewards and blessings can be lost if we're not going to live our Christianity. And the rewards are not just all eternal. I've been, as a Christian, I got saved in 1971. I've got a testimony of 50 years of blessings that God has given me in this life. But I know there's some for me if I continue to remain faithful to him on the other side. So it's a, it's a question. Should I slow down or should I try to beat it? Somebody this morning when I was coming to church, I got my green light and I went to pull out and somebody zoomed right in front of me. Now I know they had red, red for a good while to boot. It happens, that kind of stuff happens all the time. We're human beings, we make mistakes. I, I recall, and I don't know if I should share this with you, but I will. I recall within the, the last year, I believe, I really tried to be a good driver, but we were headed up to Toledo, and I can remember now, I think we were trying to get to a football game for Austin, and we were running behind. We're driving up 75, and we came to Buck Road. And they're putting a new bridge in over 75 up in Toledo. And as I got there, you could just see two or three miles of cars backed up, almost to to Cabela's, if they still call it that. It might be Batsboro. And so I looked at it, and I thought, well, I'm going to get off at Buck Road. So I got on the berm, and I was just going to bypass all these people that were waiting to cross 75. Well, the problem was, they weren't all wanting to cross 75. A lot of them wanted to get off at Buck Road, too. And so as I went by, man, the horns were honking and the waving went on and the voices went on and cars were pulling. I had some cars that pulled over in front of me so I couldn't get by. And I just drove down into the, into the berm, into the grass, went around them. <laughs> and I got to the top of that hill and at the stoplight, and Bev's not saying a word, and I looked at her and I said, what did I just do? I mean, you had to have been there. It was terrible. And I said, oh, dear Lord, forgive me. I mean, I couldn't believe that I did that. I just couldn't believe it. It was terrible. But it was a choice. I made a wrong choice. We're under grace. We make wrong choices, but is that... Your way of life, there's a difference between making a mistake and just thinking that you got the right to violate everything that the laws may say. You may bring into the realm of lying. You want to go to maybe a sports party or something. You know, we haven't had some of them for a while. 
So maybe it's like the Ohio State-Michigan football game. You got invited to it on a Saturday, and you're really looking forward to going, and they post on the board at work that it's required to come in and work. And you say, you got to be kidding me. Well, I'm calling in sick. Are you sick? Huh? I mean, well, it's just a white lie. Does the Bible say there's white lies, gray lies, black lies? Where's that at in the Bible? Does the Bible say that? Did Jesus say it's all right for a white lie? No, in this sermon we're going to look at, he said, I want your yes to be yes and your no to be no. And anything other than that is of the evil one. I mean, I'm not saying that you might have sick days to whereby you could use them as vacation days. That's not what we're talking about. But if you're going to flat out lie because you just don't feel like going, does that make it right? See, ethics deals with what is the highest choice, the, the highest good? What is the right that we should choose? And so it comes down to sometimes simple things. i got a list here. I'll read them real quick. Is it okay to pass on a conversation that was given to you in confidence? I mean, maybe some person says, for example, um, I really could use a little help and instruction in my life. I got a sinful habit, and I know that you had a problem in that area, and I know you could help me. Uh, could you help me with that situation? But I don't want anybody to know. I mean, they open the closet door just a little bit to confess their faults to you for help. Does that mean that just because it's true, it's okay to pass it around and tell everybody? Get on the phone, tell your daughter, tell your son, tell some other people. And you can put it under the guise of, we need to pray for so-and-so because... But in reality... You really wanted to get that piece of juicy dirt out. And then if that person finds out that the dirty laundry is hanging out for the world to see, they're going to know they can't trust you with anything. We're talking about dirty laundry. Is it okay? Something like that? I mean, I, you know, you say, well, it was true. That doesn't mean it, it edifies or builds up that person. Control the tongue. That's a tough one. But yet Jesus expects us to do that. You're at work and you walk into, you know, go get your cup of coffee and you're over at the place where the vending machine is and you can hear people and they're complaining about your boss. And you kind of hear it and you are tempted to enter into it and start adding to the juicy criticism that's coming forth. Is it okay to enter into it and say, yeah, and I could tell you what else and then start blabbing away at what, at uh, criticism of your employer, or maybe it's a teacher, or maybe it's a parent. Does the Bible speak about that? If a parent makes a mistake, is it all right if we can just go ahead and blob that around? I don't believe so. It's learning what the Bible says about it. If you really love the Lord, then put a lid on it. Paying bills, paying wages for work that's done. You hire somebody to do something and the bill says it needs to be paid within 15 days or 30 days and something comes up to whereby, wow, you'd like to use the money that you laid aside to pay that bill for something else. And so it's, well, they can wait. I mean, they're a business. You ever had that, Nate? I'm sure you have. I mean, they're a business. They can wait 30, 60, 90 days. 
that type of attitude. Does that make it right? We could go to big, well, I got down here, is gambling okay? Alcohol, is it okay? How about pot? A lot of the states are legalizing marijuana now. And some of them have gone beyond to legalize cocaine. Is that okay? Have you ever watched any of the history shows where they talk about the, the drug cartels and what they've done in killing and murdering people that have gotten in their way and the distribution of drugs? How about dating steady? I ran into this a few years back where people would use the term uh, when they were talking about fornication, they were getting involved in sex outside of marriage, and so their, their justification was when they talk about this steady boyfriend, they'd say, well, he's a boyfriend with privileges. And I thought, oh, that's a new one. That's, that's 2010, with privileges. I mean, is it okay if, well, I really love this guy, or I really love this girl? Does that make it okay? Does that make it right? What about homosexuality? I guarantee you that the days, uh, if it's not already here, is around the corner to whereby the government is going to really start clamping down on a lot of churches. That they don't speak out against homosexuality from the pulpit or they'll get their funds cut off. Is homosexuality all right? I mean, did Jesus address that issue? We got a Methodist minister. I, Bev's on some kind of a blog or whatever, and, and they brought out uh, this minister. He's a Methodist minister. He's going around the country. They mentioned his name and his ministry. And he is telling people that the Bible says that homosexual marriage is good, that it's okay. I mean, that's how far backwards the church has gone. Is homosexual okay? Is it right? I mean, you know, the attitude is, well, if these two men love one another, or these two women love one another, then it's acceptable and it's okay. Is it? Is that really what the Bible says? Or is it like the news media distorting the truth and twisting it to make something say that you want it to say? So all these different questions, they come up. And ethics, Christian ethics, deals with that because... It raises the question, what is the highest good? And then once that is determined, then now we're free under grace to demonstrate to God that we love him by choosing what is right. You see, God allows us to go through temptations and trials and be faced with choices about different things. He, isn't, he didn't just remove us as soon as we got saved. He didn't lock the devil up and just putting us in, a, in an environment where everything's perfect. We're in an environment where it's not. We're going to be tempted regularly. But at the same time, when we're tempted, it is a choice. And the righteous man is going to choose what is right more times than not to demonstrate to his God that he loves him more than sin. When the Bible says that we have the power over sin... That power is in his word. That power is the knowledge of what he says, but overcoming the sin is a choice of the heart. We don't have some kind of a supernatural choice, supernatural power that comes along that when you're tempted in some way to sin, all of a sudden we get a, 
and I, I don't have to sin now because I got some kind of power. In me. The, the power is in his word. It's the double-edged sword of the spirit. And the power is the Holy Spirit, which nudges us from within to say, don't do that. Turn from that. You made a covenant with me. Keep it. You know that's not pleasing to me. You know the Holy Spirit doesn't want to come into that kind of an environment. So Christian ethics, that's what it deals with. It's, the, it's making the choice of what is right or wrong. Let me give you another slide real quick. And this is not working at all today the way I wanted it to. Hold on. All right, so Christian ethics, I don't, did it change or not? Well, I'm sorry. I'll have to do something straighten it out. But anyways, you'll just have to work with on a slide today. The word ethics comes from a, the Greek word meaning ethos. If you turn over the book of Acts, let me give you a little background about ethics, and, and I won't spend a lot of time... Um, on this introduction, we'll introduce it and stop because I've already gone about half an hour and um, I'd like you to have the screen and everything else to go with it. But the word ethics comes from a Greek word ethos, which means custom or habit. I'll give you an example. In Acts 17.2, it says, Now when they, talking about Paul, had passed through Amphibolus and Apollonalia. They came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, he went unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scripture. Well, that word there where he says, and Paul, as his manner was, is that word is ethos in the Greek. And so ethos, what it means is custom or habit. Now, I like that in a lot of ways. Because when it comes to habit, sometimes we're just in, we've got bad habits that we need to be purged from. Just because you became a Christian doesn't mean that all your bad habits go out the door. Romans 12 says you're to submit to God and let him renew your mind. So there's a lot of bad habits that you have. Jesus dealt with some of those things when he said, You've heard of old time, thou shalt now kill. No, I say, I don't want you getting angry. Being a hothead and getting angry can be a bad habit for some people. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now I say unto you, whosoever lusts after woman is committing adultery in his heart. Some people have a bad habit like pornography and things of that sort, for example. He goes on, he says in another place, he says, I want your... Yay to be yay, your nay, nay, your, your yes means yes, not something other than that. And no means no, he's talking about our, our word. Some people have a bad habit that when they get into an embarrassing situation, they just lie, feeling like somehow that lie is going to get them out of it. People have bad habits. And so here he's saying that as his habit was or as his manner was, when he'd go to minister, the first place he goes is synagogue. Now, I might deal with a little bit introductory to that next week in that area. Because What you got in the Bible is that in the Old Testament, 
God laid down a, a different ethic than what we have in the new. And I'll have to explain that. But they had the law of Moses that they were to live by. And basically it was summed up in the Ten Commandments and kind of went from there. They had a lot of strict rules that they had to follow. And when they didn't follow that, then the prophets came forth and the prophets prophesied and said, repent. Get back to what is right or you're going to be judged. Well, they didn't do it. And he not only spoke to just Israel and uh, the ten tribes and Judah, but also the nations around them. I mean, you read the book of Amos. Amos said for three sins and for four. What he was basically saying there is that because of these continual sins in your nation, you've reached a point where you've crossed the line and now you're going to be judged. And they were. They were wiped out. Six Gentile nations completely eliminated and gone. Uh, the same with the ten tribes of Israel. They don't, they're not around anymore. Don't listen to any Mormons. But they're not around anymore. And there have been thousands of nations that aren't on this earth anymore. Some of them went on for hundreds of years. Why do we think that the United States of America, which has only been a country since the 1700s is somehow exempt from God's judgment. It is not. And the more that this country keeps turning in a direction contrary to what God has said, some, at some point his prophets are going to come out and say, you know what, you are at the line or you've crossed it and it's over. And when God judged a nation, he brought up another nation to judge that nation by. Assyria judged those nations in the book of Amos. And the Babylonians judged Judah. And then the remnants of that were judged by Greece and by Rome. And finally, after 70 AD, up until 1948, the nation of Israel didn't exist. Now it's here. And somehow we feel America is exempt? Not at all. That's why a lot of Christians are crying out for a more conservative political things to be taking place. But it's still, don't get caught up in it to the point that you forget we're, a, we're pilgrims and strangers. That might not be according to God's eternal plan. I don't, it's hard to find uh, in the book of Revelation or other end time events, it's hard to find the United States of America. Might be under the Isles of the Sea, but that's that's an, a matter of opinion. But anyways, the ethics deals with making the right choices and the right decisions that are there. Let me read this so I don't get off off base. And I wish my screen would change on me. Let me try one more time. Sorry, I'll, I'll, for those that are out there, everyone has some standard that they base right and right moral decisions on is abortion a right moral choice some say well yeah and they believe it's all right because here's their attitude it's my body there's no law against it it's what i want and they have other excuses uh having a baby right now would interfere with my career having a baby right now would be embarrassing because i'm not married i I'm pregnant because I allowed my boyfriend to take advantage of me and then I found out he was dating other girls and he's a jerk and I don't want anything to do with him or his kid. And we could go on and on for all the excuses and reasons why it's acceptable and it's okay in their eye. 
Is sex outside of marriage okay if people love one another? Homosexual marriage? I think I answered those things. Some believe these areas are okay and some don't. Why? Because they have a different philosophy. They have a different ideology. Philosophy is a field of study that raises questions like this. Who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose in life? Fundamental questions about our existence, our knowledge, our values. And for some, the answers that they have to those questions are not based upon scripture, but they're based upon man's answer, which is philosophy. Philosophy is a love of wisdom. We all love wisdom. But there's a wisdom of the world and a wisdom of God. And the Christian is to love the wisdom of God and not the wisdom of the world. Christian ethics is based upon God's truth. Whenever the Bible speaks about truth, it's talking about what is right. Look at a few scriptures with me real quick. John chapter 17 and verse 17 is referred to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He is about to be crucified. He's about to leave. And he prays for us. In John 17, 17, I, um, I could back up. If you back up just a little bit, you can see where he's praying for us. He says, um, oh, verse 9. He says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. So we'd be included in that. He says, verse 12, he singles it out to the apostles and those uh, disciples. He says, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I've kept, and none of them is lost save the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. That's a very powerful thing to say. That all those that were given unto him, he didn't lose any. He says, now I come to thee. He's, this is Jesus in the garden praying to his father. I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them thy word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Let me read that again. He said, the world hates them. More and more, the world is coming out and expressing hatred to the Christian, what they believe. Most of Hollywood hates Christianity. It does. Most of Hollywood and most of the media hates Christianity. And they would love to stop it if they could. He says, I pray not that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. God isn't going to just pluck us out of here when the fire gets hot. He said, the rains are going to descend. The floods are going to come. The wind's going to blow. What are you founded upon? If you think that we're going to be free from persecution and tribulation, you are wrong. And I'll show you that from the scripture. You wait and see. Persecution hasn't hit the Christian in this country like it should. It's known as the great separator. It'll be the test. It'll be the test. He says, they are not of the world. He says, I pray that you don't take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. The early church went through tremendous persecution. 
Why didn't God just pull them out of there? Because they were proving whom they loved the most by staying with his word. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Sanctify, he's saying, I want you to set them apart from the world by the word. Set them apart. I want them to be different. Well, the more and more you study what the scriptures say, it is going to make you different than a lot of people in this world. And you've got to get delivered and free from what the magazines say and what Hollywood is putting out and what all your friends at school say and what everybody else does at work and what other churches do. I'm not opposed to any church, but if a church isn't going to follow the word, I'm not going to follow along. I'm going to stay with what I sincerely believe in my heart is right. Because Jesus said, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. The truth is what, is, is what right is all about. And philosophy raises that question, what is the highest good? What is the right choice and decision we should make in life? And the answer to that is his word. Listen to Psalm 33 and verse 4. Psalm 33 and verse 4 tells us, he says, The word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. What is right? What saith the scripture? You stay with the scripture, the rightly interpreted view of the scripture, and you're building on a rock. And it doesn't matter what, what comes along, God's there to be with you. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. But he expects you to stay with him. How can two walk together unless they be agreed? Psalm 19 and verse 8. Listen, he repeats the same thing again. The statues of the Lord, his scripture, the word, the statues of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes you want to know what's right well what does the bible say what does the scripture say that's what christian ethics is all about so when we become a christian we right away then are expected to be like a baby and get fed the word of god so that we can mature and grow in fact he starts out in the sermon on the mount by saying blessed are the poor in spirit for they shall see god that's the first thing. It's a beatitude. Beatitude simply means blessed. He gave about seven blessings there. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers, etc. That's where we'll start. But the first thing is you have to be poor in spirit. You have to, you have to be humble enough that you don't look at yourself, well, I was raised in a Methodist church. So I know everything that the Methodists know, and it's right because I'm a Methodist. No, you're a church member. That's all you are. I was raised in a Methodist home as well. I was a church member, but I wasn't a Christian. I was one of those Jesus talked about and said, I could say, Lord, Lord, but he wasn't in my heart ruling and reigning. There's a lot of church members. They're not going to make it. If you are, and not that it's being wrong to be a church member, but... If you're a Christian, you got a new heart, you got a love for Jesus, 
in your heart and that love for him. He said, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the light. What did he mean by that when he said, I'm the truth? My way is the right way. And, and if customs and traditions and men stand in the pulpit and say something contrary to what God says, you're given a choice. Right or wrong, what are you going to follow? I'm going to follow that which is right. So he tells us in 1 Peter that we're to desire the sincere milk of the word of God that we may grow thereby. When he starts this sermon, he says the first thing you need to do is to recognize that you are like a little baby, that you don't know anything. And I'm your dad, and I'm going to teach you how to talk, and I'm going to teach you how to crawl, and I'm going to teach you how to walk, and I'm going to teach you how to eat. And you have to recognize yourself as that in that position. You know, it amazes me. Some Hollywood personality or some sports personality will become a Christian, somebody, some rock star, some singer, and right away, let's get this, this individual that's famous up on the up where everybody can listen to him or her and what they have to say, and they may know nothing about the Bible, and yet they're put up on some kind of a pedestal because they're going to draw a crowd and all that other, and then truth becomes whatever that person says. Isn't it sad? It's sad. Makes you want to cry. So philosophy is finding out what is right based upon the scripture, and then choosing to live that. 2 Timothy 3.16, I'm going to close with that and then probably pick up this next week a little bit more introductory. It says, All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness. Righteousness is living right. We've got the scripture and we've got the Holy Spirit to help us understand it and guide us with it, but he's not going to tell you to do something that's contrary to the Word of God. We've got the Scripture and the Holy Spirit and the anointed ministry that God has given to whereby when we are confronted with choices and decisions in life, we can know what is right and what is wrong. And all he expects from us is you yield to what my Holy Spirit is showing you. If you slip up, well, then talk to me and that can be forgiven. But I don't expect you to live a life of arguing with me and fighting with me and quarreling with me. I want you to be a yielded servant unto me. I remember what the Bible says in the book of Isaiah chapter 5. And it reminiscent of the days we live in. He says, woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. You know what I mean? And I, when I was thinking about that minister going around saying that homosexuality and homosexual marriage was good and based upon the Bible, I thought, woe, woe unto you. You read the book of Amos again. Maybe get out online, download my sermon on it. It's a, it's a good one. I normally don't say that, but it was... God really blessed in that one. Because when Amos, that prophet, went to uh, Israel and was prophesying about the coming judgment of Assyria, the high priest took him aside and he said, 
You go prophesy in Judah. Get out of here. We don't want to hear that stuff here. And Amos, in a previous chapter, looked at him and he said, basically, you tell me to leave and go somewhere else, prepare to meet thy God. <laughs> and it was only a few short years later that Sennacherib came in and overcome. They were destroyed. Judah, Hezekiah turned them around enough to whereby it was delayed. But God is... God will deal with any nation that refuses to, to follow that which is right. We are created in the image of God. We got a basic knowledge of what is right and wrong. And when we become a Christian, we want him to show us how to build on that knowledge so that we can make right choices and decisions. Father, I ask you to bless the words and help us get started into the Sermon on the Mount, whereby we can let you lead us and guide us and direct us through all of those profound truths that your son spoke when he was upon the earth. He spoke those things as a teacher, as a prophet, to tell us, these are the principles I want you to live by and build yourself upon. And if we do, we're building upon that rock and no matter what comes along, we will not be separated from us. Teach us these things. Remind us of these things. And move on our heart to be faithful to them. And that we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.